from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio, I hope you had a fantastic weekend, got a little work done, got a little rest in, and are living the entrepreneurial dream. I have a dream show for you today. First up, Suhi Piedra is with us. She is a Mexican-American CPA running an incredible tax business, is going to talk being a female entrepreneur, taxes, small business, write-offs, all things of interest to us. It's a very educational and motivational interview. And so I'm excited for you to meet Suhi. Uh, a credit uh, to us for having her on the show and for her, for a great life led. And then Alex Sandoval, an incredible story about AI and manufacturing. Great stuff, predictive maintenance, all of that. Great stuff coming up in like five seconds. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us today. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. This is one of the stories that makes me just love America and think that we are still a great country. Please welcome Suhi Piedra to the show. For the last 20 years or so, she and her two sisters have been working in the tax preparation and wealth management industries. They, the three of them, started Prominence Business and Wealth Management. You can find them at prominencebusiness.com. Today, she is talking about her signature program called Business Elite and the 12-month taxes strategy that you need to have. You need to be thinking about it year round. She has a podcast of her own and is, uh, I'm excited to welcome her. Zoe, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, It's our pleasure to welcome you. So tell us about the business and working with your sisters. Who's in charge, by the way? I am the oldest, so that would make me in charge automatically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe in some Hispanic cultures that would be true, but in America, that's not necessarily true. So are you in charge? That is true. (laughs) No, I am. So um, I'm the oldest. uh, We're five girls, and um, we're all about four, you know, between four and seven age and seven years in difference. My three oldest, we are all um, in the accounting world, tax world. And so uh, about five, six years ago, we decided to start our own business and put our, you know, all our hard work, uh, you know, together to, to open up our own firm. So it's been great. I'm sorry. Keep going. What? It's been great. Um, It's, it's been a, it's been a learning experience. We have been in the industry for over 20 years, helping others. I've worked with different CPAs, um, helping them with their business, launch their business, 
you know, grow their business until one day I was like, why don't I just do this for myself? You know? Um, but you know, coming from a very humble upbringing, my parents, you know, being immigrants, they just taught us to work and that's what they did. That's what they've done. Uh, you know, work, work, work. And so we saw that and we mirrored it for a long time. We just worked for others. Um, until one of my crews, my sister Cruz is like, Hey, we, we really have to start doing this for ourselves. We keep helping others grow their business and it's not our business. It's theirs. And we need to do this for ourselves. So in 2018, we decided to launch our own business. Oh, congratulations. And how are you better than the other guys? Uh, how have you taken the knowledge that you had and created a better firm? So what makes us a little bit different, and I mean, obviously it does have to do with uh, who we are and who we have, you know, grown up to be, our upbringing makes a huge difference. But um, overall, what we do is more of, uh, we do tax planning. So what I noticed when I was working in uh, for other CPA firms is it's not the CPA firm itself, it's the industry. And with taxes, we tend to do taxes only because we have to, and at the very last minute, if at all possible, right? And we just data punch some numbers into a computer system, and whatever it spits out, it spits out. We just we just deal with it. We just kind of go on doing this year after year, not really tweaking or changing anything other than maybe our withholdings, but that didn't change the bill. The, our, the tax bill remained or got higher as you know, we make more money. So, um, when about 2008, when I saw the housing crash and everything, I just, you know, kept looking at families walking into the office and preparing the returns. And it was just devastating to seeing people losing their homes and getting their cars repoed. And it didn't really how much matter how much money they were making. It was a half a million dollar uh, family living to paycheck to paycheck, or it could have been a, you know, $50,000 family living paycheck to paycheck. Everybody was going through the whole foreclosure, you know, and maybe lost their job, something along those lines that everybody was going through in the 2008, 2009, um, you know, crashes and stuff, adjustments, whatever you want to call them. And so, um, I realized that it didn't matter how much money you made, that it was about what you did with your money that really mattered. And just felt that people were looking for guidance. They needed more. They needed more than just a preparer punching in numbers and saying, you know, this is uh, the result of your tax return. And so I took that opportunity to really become a consultant, to really learn more about finances and budgeting and about um, creating assets and passive income. And over that course of time, I just became more educated. I went back to school. I learned, um, you know, I had other licenses and I became more about looking at your overall finances and using the opportunity that people have to walk into my office to do their taxes, but saying, hey, did you realize how much money you made this year? Do you realize how much Uncle Sam took from you? realize that if you just do this tweak and that tweak, that your tax liability will drop, therefore creating a bigger refund for you, or you would owe the IRS less. And so it ended up being where it became something that we were became more proactive um, about your taxes. Now, 
it was hard to do this under somebody else's business because it was my vision, my dream, my way of doing business versus theirs. And that's what also urged us to open up our own business was that we can now take the time that clients need to really look at the overall big picture so that they get to learn how to keep more of their hard-earned money. I love that, Suhi. That is uh, great advice. Uh, What percent of people are getting ripped off with taxes? What percent of the people, well, let me ask it two ways. What percent are ripping the government off? What percent are getting ripped off by the government? And what percent are actually paying the, the fair share that they should? You know, is it look like a bell curve or is it look like a big jaggedy uh, thunderbolt thing where the data doesn't look like it should? Well, it, it's going to be how you interpret the data. Okay. I'll answer all of your three questions. You asked, you know, who's paying the majority of the taxes. That's very simple. It's going to be your W-2 employees. The system is made so that our W-2 individuals just pay the majority of the taxes. Because when we ask, when they come in, they ask, what can I write off? The IRS, the, the tax forms have limited, uh, I mean, everything so that the W-2 employees can no longer really, you know, take a deduction for, for anything. And so what that causes is that causes all the W-2 earners to just, it is what it is. They just have to pay the tax. At least that's what they're led to believe and that's what they assume. And so that's the, 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 the main group of people that pay the majority of the tax. Now, we have the self-employed individuals who the majority of the time you believe that, you know, they're ripping off the system or they're getting away with writing off the kitchen sink and, you know, everything and anything under the sun. That is, that's typically what you believe. But at the end of the day, they're ripping themselves off because when you report zero or close to zero income or negative losses, the overall picture of that tax return is you have no purchasing power. Cross the street to the bank and say, hey, I want to purchase a house or I want to purchase an investment property or I want to purchase my first building or or do something or I want a loan. They're going to say, sure, bring me your tax return. And when they look at your tax return, they don't care if you made a million dollars. You ended up reporting zero in income. Therefore, you can't borrow money. And in this country, we're purchasing power, right? So you just shot yourself in the foot for a whole year or two years possibly because the bank is not going to lend you money because you're reporting to the IRS that you're broke. And if that's what you're reporting, that's what the bank also assumes. And therefore, now you it's harder for you to qualify for, for loans. There are obviously exceptions and all of that stuff, but it comes at a cost. Now you're paying higher interest. So at the end of the day, maybe you paid zero taxes, but your purchasing power has been limited so much that you're the, you're the losing party. You can't grow. You can't create assets that will you know, give you more in the long run because you have crappy tax returns. So That is such a great point, Sue Hay. And I uh, was just blown away when I, I learned that the first time I was so proud of myself that I had zero income. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, wow, I have zero reportable, you know, uh, yeah. assets to show from that. And not only can you not borrow and stuff, you can't get credit cards and right. all sorts of things. 
know, I had myself in a position where I owned my house. I owned my car. I didn't need any, uh, debt credit, credit mm-hmm. or, you know, any sort of vehicles at all, you know, uh, income or asset vehicles. And I just lived off a debit card. And then when I got married and all that changed, boy, was that a, a, a wake up call for me. But there's another thing that happens too, is that if you go to sell that business and you're not showing yourself as a, right. an earner, then the true income of that business is not being reflected in the documents that the potential purchasers see. And, you know, you can't really tell what that business is making. Correct. So again, what did you just do? You hurt yourself, right? So, and, you know, in many businesses and, and, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're told to plan, right? We're supposed to have goals. We're supposed to have, um, you know, um, you know, just a, a plan of where we're going. Well, taxes need to do the same exact thing. This is why we promote planning because taxes shouldn't just be on the whim, whatever it is, it is. It should be something that is planned out throughout the year because you want the outcome of that tax return to be what you want it to be. That's not illegal. You can totally do that. It's just not highly promoted to do it. No one talks about planning. And so therefore the return ends up looking, however, it's going to look most likely benefiting Uncle Sam. Now, I'm not against taxes. I always say, let's pay our fair share. We live in a country that's built off of taxes. And we love our country. So there's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is I only want to pay what I need to pay. Anything else I can control to make this better, then I will. Because I could do better with my money and create assets and do more things that will help contribute to property taxes or to my community. But I'm controlling it. And the other way around, it just vanishes and you don't even know what happens to your money. You don't know where it's going and what it's benefiting in, in, in a sense, right? Um, but again, it's everybody's choice. And so promoting planning is what I'm trying to spread the message about is if you plan out correctly, you have more control, you get to keep more in your money, and you could turn around and make create assets for yourself that could create generational wealth if that's what you want. Talk to us about business deductions. You know, so part of the strategy is the deductions that being a business owner allows us, right? We were talking about when you have a W-2, you're limited in what you can do. What are the new tools that get added to your tool belt as the CPA doing my taxes if I have uh, a business? And, you know, it's actually an ongoing real entity, right? How does that change the strategy? So what I tell clients is um, we want to learn to ask, is, is not, it's not ask, is this deductible, right? Because a lot of clients will call and be like, well, is my pen deductible? Well, I don't know. The question should be, how can I make my pen a deduction, right? How can I make this or that a deduction? Because the IRS allows us to, as long as it's ordinary and necessary for our business, we could take a deduction for it. Now we just have to create the business and make it so that whatever it is you're trying to deduct, that it's ordinary and necessary for you to conduct that business. So it, it you know, deductions can be very creative. Um, it's just a matter of what it is that you're trying to do. I have clients 
we're really big with, you know, investing in real estate or acquiring rental properties in different states and stuff like that. So a lot of the times clients want to be able to deduct certain things. And I'm like, look, if you're going to be going to Tennessee because your family's from Tennessee, then acquiring a rental property in Tennessee is going to be a good idea for you because we can deduct a portion of your traveling back and forth because you have properties there, you have investments there. Um, You know, and, you know, I usually like to uh, tell clients, what is it that you're trying to do? What is your goal? What is this goal going to serve? Is it to retire early? Is it to create generational wealth? Is it to, you know, have a really nice place for your family? And then we turn around and we create a plan that's going to be all within IRS code because the IRS code is ginormous. I'm sure there's a, a strategy we can pull from there that we could utilize that'll benefit you and uh, what you're trying to accomplish. It just requires a little strategy, a little pause of you know working backwards because we want the goal and then we want to work backwards to figure out what can we do to get there. Uh, but deductions are, it could be anything under the sun as long as it's ordinary and necessary for you and your business. There's so many different types of businesses out there that and for one business, this may be ordinary necessary. And for the other, it just doesn't make sense. And I always like to show or talk about, you know, here in California, there's a famous case by a real estate agent who, want, who won a case against the IRS because she was able to deduct her yacht. Well, if I'm a real estate agent in the desert, how the heck am I going to write off my yacht? It just makes no sense. But if you're selling properties that are near the ocean and they need to have ocean views or accessible through the beach and you want to, you know, take your client to view the property from that angle, you may need a yacht to do so, you know? So it just depends on what it is you're doing, what type of business you're operating and what is it that you're trying to write off? Because with proper planning, a lot of things can fall under that and be deductible. That's great advice. I used to have a family house up on the lake and we were very close to the real estate agent that we bought the land from 30 years ago. And he had been a family friend for that entire time. And all of his, uh, presentations were via boat, you know, and he would get them out there (laughs) on the boat and serve him cheese and, uh, wine out on the pontoon boat and show you the house, you know, during sunset and, you know, his close ratio but, was pretty good. So. <laughs> right. But does that, does that make sense though? Right. Imagine if you have a property in the desert, like why would your agent have a boat? It makes no sense. Right. Cause it, it, there's no lake to, to really, or a view of that. And so that's kind of what I tell clients is what is it that we're trying to do? What is the purpose of this widget that you're trying to write off? Um, does it serve the business or, or how can we turn around and make it serve the business? Um, there's nothing illegal about that. It's just how we present, how you document, how everything needs to line up in case there ever is an audit that the IRS agent says, oh, there's legitimate use for that item or whatever. Are clothes ever a legitimate item? The clothes is always going to be something that it's going to depend, right? Um, There are individuals out there that have to have a persona or a certain appearance when they're on stage, right? If you're a presenter. Liberace. So, 
I, I, I tell them, make sure you have logos, um, your company logos in those jackets, um, that they're only used for that, that presentation, that stage appearance that you're trying to do. If this is your everyday wear, it's not going to fly. The IRS is going to be like, nope, you wear this every single day. There's, there's no reason for you to, to say that this was a, a, some sort of a uniform or a costume or something of those lines, right? Um, but if this is because you are a presenter, you're on stage, and this is a, 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 you know, an identity that you assume when you're on there, you know, there may be ways that we could get that to be a deduction as long as we can document, as long as we can, you know, if, if there's logos, you put that on there, it's a company uniform in a sense. Um, yes, we can make that a deduction. All right. So I need to get the interior lining of my suit jacket to have my logo on it so I can flash yeah, my logo during the a presentation <laughs> on stage. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, there was there was a client that um she comes in here every single time in a in running uh you know like tights and and a sweater and tennis shoes, right? Um uh, then you see her on stage and I'm like, "Wow, just your outfit alone is like a whole different you, you know?" She goes, "Yeah, people don't believe people think I dress like this every day." She goes, "I don't." She goes, "I hate wearing this stuff, you know?" So it was something that we had to really get creative about putting um, logos and putting um, the company uh, mission and all that other stuff. But it was just, uh, it was something that we had to, you know, go a little bit above and beyond just because she felt that, you know, she wanted to deduct it and she wanted to prove that this is not how she dresses every day. So it's, it's doable. Suhei, you are Hispanic, female. Is that helped your entrepreneurial career, hurt your entrepreneurial career? Do you get a lot of Hispanic customers because they want to be loyal? Is that your niche? Uh, talk to us you about know, the, uh, you, you would hear that this is a huge hindrance and it makes it impossible to be an entrepreneur. What's the reality? Well, you know, like I said, my parents are, you know, are immigrants and I, at a very young age, and I'm talking about 12, 13 years old, already knew how to pay house bills, um, you know, balance a checkbook, you know, do anything and everything I needed to do to help my parents run the household. So I learned taxes at a very young age. Um, what I thought was a hardship to my parents because of, you know, the language and because of them not being from this country, you know, it was quickly just something that became a reality to me that that's not true, that it didn't have to do with the fact that they were immigrants. Uh, like everything else that, you know, was in the household, it was because they didn't speak English or because of this. And, you know, they didn't know that. And one day when they were filing their taxes, they accidentally mixed up the forms. And I go to my neighbor next door and I grew up in a neighborhood that, um, you know, we had a lot of, you know, American white individuals in the neighborhood. So I go to my neighbor, older in his sixties, late sixties, retired, uh, white gentleman. And I go, Hey, Mrs. Tracy, my parents messed up these forms. I don't know what these, how these go back together. Can you help me? And he's like, taxes. And I was like, yep. And then he goes, I have no idea. And I'm like, well, how can you not know you're white, right? And so he started laughing. He's like, I have taxes are so complicated and blah, blah, blah. And so it made me realize at that point that it didn't matter 
where you're from, what your age is, your background. Taxes are just complicated. Taxes are led to believe that, you know, they're this thing that nobody wants to face, nobody wants to do. God, you know, if you say the word IRS or IRS agent and people freak out, people are afraid of the IRS. And so I quickly realized that it had nothing to do with the fact that, you know, I come from a Mexican or, you know, a family. It just has to do with everybody across the board just doesn't really like to do or deal with their taxes. And so that changed my perspective on them. I wanted to learn them. I wanted to know anything and everything about them. And so I started at a very young age learning all about them. Not that I wanted to do a career, be a, you know, a tax preparer of any sort, but they intrigued me. And I started to learn more about them. And then before you know it, you know, I got licensed and my aunt wanted me to do her taxes and my sister and you know, the, the friend down the street. And so it became something that I just did as a side hustle for many years until I said, you know what, might as well make a career out of it. I love what I do. I find them interesting. And there's so much in the uh, tax world that I could do. That's when I decided to make, you know, this business. Now, my current clients range all over the place. They're not all, um, you know, Hispanic. They're not all women or anything like that, uh, because I, I spread the message that it really doesn't matter what our background is. Taxes, people just fear taxes. And because I've had to learn how to explain this to individuals like my parents that had a very limited understanding of them has made me the type of person that can turn something so complicated as taxes and explain it to people and make it sound so simple. And that's what has been the key is that people come in here and they're like, wow, no one has ever explained taxes to me this way. No one made it seem this easy. Nobody has turned it around and said, I can make, I can change this. I can make it to where it benefits me and not uncle Sam. And that's what we're about is about making taxes just simpler to understand so that we can all take advantage of what we can. Very well said. How do we find out more? Follow you online. Get in touch. So we're located in uh, Glendora, California, but we are federally licensed, and so I work with clients across the U.S. We buy. We we encourage uh, clients to purchase properties all throughout the United States as a tax write-off, and we teach them how to take advantage of you know real estate investments. So we clearly are doing business with clients, um, you know, all throughout the U.S. And website is prominencebusiness.com. And, you know, we're social media, our Instagram and all of that is something that we keep up to date and we like to utilize so that we market what we do out there to the broad audience. Thank you so very much. Great stuff. Congratulations and great advice. I love your no, thoughts on strategy. Thank you so much. Well done. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here. And we will be right back. Welcome. 
We are back. And again, thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce you to another great tech company. In this case, it is a SaaS, S-A-S company. Please welcome the founder, Alex Sandoval, to the show. He is uh, on the younger side and has been running the business, but has had 15 years of experience already. He held some high-level leadership positions at Nubank. Rappi and Google. He's an expert on scaling B2B SaaS products. And today we're going to talk about his company, Ally, or Ally, which is helping bring uh, manufacturing and AI to the U.S. It's starting off as a Latin American company. Alex, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Excited uh, our for the time on the show. So explain what Ali does. So, so Ali, yeah, Ali in one line is bringing artificial intelligence into manufacturing. Uh, we manufacturing is a uh, very traditional, um, ha- have been operating in very traditional kind of mental models. And, uh, now we have the ability to really extract and maximize the value out of all of the data that's generated in an operation from processes to systems to machines. And now through the power of machine learning and generative AI, uh, both directors and people on the floor can make the right decisions uh, aided by these tools. All right. Can you give us an example? Walk us through a situation. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a director of manufacturing for a large food and beverage facility in New Hampshire. And uh, with Ali, the first thing I do is I log into Ali and I look at my overall operational efficiency. I can look at which machines are on, which ones have uh, any sort of irregular activity. And then a predictive model will go and alert me and say, Hey, you need to check out your oven because one of the models has detected that the amperage of one of the components is way off its range. So you immediately send a little message and ask Ali to raise a maintenance order. That maintenance order will reach to the maintenance manager and they will go and repair that preemptively. And the, the difference, you know, to being, uh, reactive versus predictive is that typically your oven would break down, your line would stop and it would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars through machine learning and generative intelligence. Now you're able to analyze problems in seconds, figure out what the source of it is and fix it before it's actually broken. So that's really kind of what you can do with, with AI and ML embedded into your manufacturing operation. And I hate to be so stupid, but this oven that you're talking about, you're talking about a $500,000 oven that cooks 300,000 Twinkies an hour or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're not talking about your oven that bakes cookies. <laughs> I was no, talking about your right. oven that 
exactly that manages hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of um, food and and all types of um, you know different types of products in the food, in the F and B sector. All right, and so. How far along is the company? Give us a little entrepreneurial history. Uh, how'd you get the idea? What'd you do first? How'd you get the first customer? How's it doing now? Give yeah. us the whole history. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've actually, I, I come from the manufacturing space. My dad, I, I've been in factories since I'm five years old. My, I, I was, you know, always shadowing my dad going to, you know, his factories. Um, we used to have a, a factory that produced conveyor belts for plants all across the Americas from the U S to countries in Latin America. Um, when I was, uh, a young, younger than I am now, when I was, uh, recently, uh, fresh up, out of college, I decided actually I wanted to go into tech and my first job was working, uh, for the energy sector, actually working on a, on a product for GE called Credix that was helping do predictive uh, analytics to be able to detect problems in turbines in in power plants. And that was kind of my first uh, immersion into uh, predictions and machine learning applied into the industrial sector, right? And then I spent 10 years, I lived in Asia for six years. I lived in the US for a bit, helping different companies like Oracle in the US, Grab in Southeast Asia, Rappi, which is a huge delivery company in Latin America, launched SaaS products. And when I wanted to, when I was figuring out my own entrepreneurial journey, I, you know, I went back to my family roots and started to visit my friends' factories. Uh, you know, we, we, we have a, a network in the space. And I, and I was shocked to kind of see how factories today were solving problems around operational efficiency around maintenance, still some of them even using pen and paper to track different metrics uh, on machines that would help them, uh, you know, track how, how, the, how their factory is doing, their productivity, maintenance. And, you know, now uh, with the commoditization of models, with the advent of, uh, you know, what companies like OpenAI are doing, we really have an, an opportunity to bring advanced technology into the factory by connecting to all of the machines that are on the factory floor. Um, we, we started out, um, one of, uh, one of my, the, the, the persons that work in our, in our company, uh, he leads finance and one of his, uh, family members was working for a big industrial conglomerate in the North of Mexico in the food space. And actually, you know, we, we made the bold decision of, we actually did not want to serve mid-market clients. Like we realized that, you know, for us to launch a product and in, in a factory and deliver efficiency, the effort of doing that for a factory of 300 workers versus a factory of 10,000 workers is actually the same. So we made the bold decision of, we want to go after the big guys uh, from the get-go. So um, we, we kind of used our network uh, first friends and family, um, you know, luckily we, we have some good connections in, in Mexico, which was the first market we launched and we were able to work with some of the biggest names in, in Mexico, industrial conglomerates, you know, making over three, $4 billion a year in revenue, 
And, you know, they really gave us an opportunity uh, to, they opened the doors of the factories, allowed us to come in, understand processes, connect to machines, and start building the first use cases. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the positive thing is customers would usually say, hey, you know, let's try out your product in one line. And a, a typical customer would have 90, 100 lines, right? And we would start with one. But the great thing about Ali is bec- it, it, it pays itself, right? The fact that you're doing predictions um, on the factory floor, that you're using generative AI to do analysis on your line, which speeds up time, you know, from weeks of analysis to seconds, uh, really delivers efficiency gain. So, you know, you're able to reduce those hours that, you know, it's called unplanned downtime that can cost you $100,000 to $500,000 per hour that the line is, is, is down. Now, effectively, all those hours are, are savings. So, you know, once we prove those business cases for that one line, customers would come in and say, okay, now I want it all across the factory. So that gave us an opportunity to kind of grow really fast. We're not a company that is working with hundreds of customers. We're very, very targeted. We work with, you know, specific industrial conglomerates that are of a certain size in three sectors, food, beverage, and uh, construction materials. So that's really kind of uh, where we got started. We've, we've now deployed, you know, in, in, a, in a handful of industrial conglomerates. Our plan now is to expand into other markets later in the year. Uh, we're eyeing the U.S., which obviously a lot of the customers that we have now have plants in the U.S. So it's going to be, you know, uh, we're going to have our, few, our first few set of customers just by expanding on our existing clients. So we're very excited about that. And, and that's where... We're at now. We're a team of uh, 25 people. Um, we have about 50 on-demand engineers that help us with deployment for implementations and installations. And uh, yeah, excited about what's uh, what's in store for for this year. You said a buzzword that I was really wondering about: the installation. So you bring me on. What ha- do my ovens already have these sensors and other things built in or, uh, how does it integrate into a factory that's, you know, already making a bunch of yeah. bread? I grew up with the flowers bread family. They, you know, flowers bread is a Southern bread company. They make, I guess yeah. all types, but you know, they had a huge factory that's been there for 50 years. I bet a lot of their stuff is old as the hills. So how's it uh, install work? Yeah. So you, you know, you'll be surprised there, there's all sorts of different types of machines and all sorts of level of, we, we call it digital readiness, right? Digital readiness means like a machine has a computer. Yep. That computer is reading some variables like temperature, like uh, vibration, or even just the productivity of the machine. Some really old machines, like the one you just mentioned, we have to install sensors, right? Because they're not smart machines. So we install a sensor that is reading these variables and machines that are smarter or, and, and typically, you know, all new machines already come in with embedded sensors. So we just need to connect to their computer. Okay. However, the problem with these newer machines is they work kind of like an island, right? Like you can have a, you know, a Ferrari of an industrial oven, but you, 
that 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 machine kind of lives on its own. It's not connected to its system. You don't know how that oven is impacting other processes or what other processes have correlation with, for example, product wastage that happens in the oven, right? So kind of the, the benefit of working with us is that we aggregate all of the data sets from all the machines. So we don't just work with one machine on an island. We kind of draw upon the interconnectedness of, of understanding the, the machine and, and the plant as lines, right? And we start to do machine learning so that we understand correlations. How does station A impact station B? How does station B impact station C? And when you have connected data, you're able to understand those connections so that you um, are able to do better predictions that are not just dependent on one machine. So it's not just, you know, when one machine is going south, it's actually when does the line go south, Is that if that makes sense. It does. It does. Very cool, Alex. How did you or the company acquire the AI skills piece? So that sounds, you know, it sounds like the engineering piece is there. Where does the AI piece come from as a business? And pretty yeah, impressive look, with 25 I, employees in under two years, by the way, I didn't mention that. No, so very impressive. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Look, I think the first thing is uh, building, you know, a AI is really going to be one of these technologies uh, that are going to be as powerful, you know, as, as, as the different revolutions like computing, like oil, you know, like these things that hit our planet and, and completely change the way that we interact with the world, right? So um, we, we really kind of made sure that as we're building the company, we became native in AI and native in AI means like we use AI to build products. Um, we structure the company, it's technical infrastructure in a way that is native to AI in a way that can scale. So it's really kind of living and breathing AI, not just in terms of the products we're building, but in, in how we're also using it as a tool for, for our company. Um, the critical things, in terms of building AI that you need from an, from a software engineering perspective is obviously, you know, you need to have teams on the ground that are integrating data sets. Like data is really what fuels an, a great model, uh, what trains either, you know, a great machine learning model or a great language model. So you have to have people on the ground that are integrating data sets, you know, that are working with customers and seeing, okay, like what, where's your quality data? Where's your maintenance data? How do I plug into this? How do I plug into that? But because of what really makes, you know, your model special is the amount of information that you're able to have. Then, you know, the second key thing needed from a, from a software perspective is kind of data pipelines. Like how now I have all this data and it's unstructured and it's in different formats. And, you know, some people write things in a one way, some people write it right in another. So you need tools to be able to like normalize all of this information, you know? So it's, it's consistent. You're able to make connections within it. And then you start to build, you know, you obviously need a data lake where, you know, you put all your data, you store it, and then you build features on it so that you're able to feed um, your model. So, you know, it's really, really just investing in great data scientists, machine learning engineers, ML ops, um, uh, data engineers. So data is kind of really at the core of, building great models and then you have a bunch of tools out there 
that, um, you know, you can use to, to, to train models. You know, there's tools like hugging face where you can actually buy models. You can buy training data. Um, there's LLL like language models that are now, uh, completely open source, you know, that are competing with open AI and that are almost as good as open AI. You can get those models, fine tune them with your data. Um, but, but I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, really investing in data and how to collect it, how to store it and how to build features on it is really the key thing of, of kind of building with AI and doing it in a very quick, uh, quick way. Talk to us, Alex, about the financial piece of this, the fiscal, did you have to raise money? Did it not cost much to start up? I mean, it's a service business. So theoretically it might not have cost that much. Does it cost a lot to access some of the AI? You were just saying that a lot of it is free. So talk to me about the financial component of building an AI. Yeah, com completely. Look, I think the key thing here is you have to make some very critical decisions up front in what your technical stack looks like, right? If AI is a, is, you know, like cloud, a model that is consumption based, right? So the more queries or the, you know, the more asks or the more pings I have on the model, it's the more expensive it is for me, right? Like say, you know, you have a product like, like chat GPT, right? Depends on, you know, how many questions I ask it, how many data sources it's checking, all of that is cost, 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 right? Like, cause it's computing costs. Now you need to be very, very careful um, in terms of what are the models you're using so that you're able to be very efficient in terms of your computing, right? If I use an open source model, like a open source language model, then that's going to be definitely way cheaper than, you know, working with a company that has a paid model like OpenAI where you're paying for every query, right? And models can very quickly spiral out of control, right? Like you, if you have an agreement with, you know, an, uh, a license for using an LLM and suddenly you, you create a, a product and you give it to a factory and they love it so much that, you know, suddenly 500 line supervisors are using it and in two days, you have a bill of $50,000, $100,000 because, you know, uh, it, it just spun out of control. So it's, it's very important, I think, that you analyze the line items of what a query costs, you know, and what that means is, okay, when I, I'm going to ask uh, uh, LLM model something or when I have a machine learning model that does a prediction, how much that does cost, how much does that cost me? And I do a line by line for every single request. And once you do that, I think that's really important in, in how you price, right? Because then you can go to a customer and say, Hey, okay, you're going to get a, a thousand questions at this price. And you know that once they go over that, then, you know, you're not going to be cutting into your own cost. So I think pricing, like making sure you understand the line by line cost of, 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 you know, what a machine learning, uh, model requests or an LLM request look like is important in terms of how you price so that you suddenly don't have, you know, a million dollar bill because your customers went crazy. So that that's just like a key consideration for anybody who's building an AI. Great advice. I love it, Alex. And about the marketing, you said you have a handful of customers. So I assume 
what I'm hearing from that is you went out to four or five factories and integrated with, you know, a handful of businesses. So were those already customers of yours from prior businesses or, you know, through prior connections and yeah. then on an ongoing basis, how do you plan on marketing? You know, other than being on this show, which is going to bring in just about every factory in the United States. Other than that, what other marketing plans do you have on an ongoing long-term basis? Yeah, look, I, I would say, honestly, the, the first thing that every entrepreneur should do in terms of getting a new customer to try it is get, go and tap into their network, right? Um, go and look for your friends, for your you know, college, people you went to college with, or if you did a master's program or people you used to work with, and go and find people that you know, already have some sort of level of trust built, you know, through whether it's a direct connection or a person that knows you really well, that is enough, especially in B2B to get someone to, Hey, okay, I'm willing to try your product. Right. So every entrepreneur out there, I think that's the best really advice that you can, that, that you can do into, 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 you know, getting the first group of customers uh, started. Right. The second thing I would say is, you know, in, in the early stages, make sure as a founder, you're the one doing the selling, right? Um, a lot of companies like make the mistake of outsourcing sales to a sales team. And then the founder kind of just loses touch with the customer, right? Like you need to be actively involved in sales as a founder so that you can get on the ground, understand what are, um, how does the deal get closed? Who are the influencers who make the decisions? How does budgeting work for your specific industry? What are the objections that they have for your product so that you can then build them into your next sales pitch? And with every sales pitch, you start learning more about, you know, the, your customer, what they care about, what gets them excited, what, what are their objections? And then once you, you know, have your first 10 customers locked down, uh, okay, then you can start thinking, okay, how, obviously this, you know, the, this number is different. It depends on, you know, whether you're a B2C company, B2B company type of industry, um, average, uh, average uh, order value for each customer. But once you reach, okay, I have a, I have a, a, a model that works. I, I, you know, I know the pitch, right. I have the documents, right. The process is working like a charm. Then I go in and hire a sales team that will do then, you know, the, the, this work. And, you know, if you're in the B2B space, typically account-based marketing is what works really well. Having, you know, being present in the industry conferences where, you know, a lot of your buyers are doing events, uh, B2B, especially for big, big accounts, it's a lot about FaceTime. So where do your customers spend time? What events are they at? And how do you make sure that you're um, there so that you can start talking to them? And a lot of you know, the, the stuff that we do, especially because AI manufacturing is so new is education, right? Like how do we put content out there, um, that will educate our buyers that will get them to think differently about how they're running their operation. Um, and that's also something that, you know, that will help build, uh, demands. Great advice, Alex, you got a bunch of it. Fantastic. And congratulations. Very cool business. Uh, you know, it's just mind boggling to think about where AI will take manufacturing, you know, and 
what that will lead to. Oh, uh, I can't wait till the AI says, you know, there's a better way to do this, buddy. You know, I got these designs that you put into me and I, you could do this a lot better. No. And, and the really powerful thing is, you know, we're, we're working on this. We haven't gotten there is when we can actually talk to the machines, right? Because right now what we're doing is, you know, essentially we're pulling data from machines, training models on it, and then giving human beings that are in the factory making decisions, the best advice possible to make decisions to increase efficiency and productivity. Um, but our next step is actually getting AI or getting the models to talk back in machines so that you can actually, you know, go tell, Hey Jim, manufacturing director, we think the speed of, um, of this machine should be 20% lower because, you know, if you stay, if you keep running it at this speed, it's going to break down in, in one hour. Right. And then it asks you, Hey, do you mind if I lower the velocity for you? You say yes. And then our, you know, our, our product will go talk to the machine through its computer and lower the speed for you, you know, and that's a really powerful thing when it's not just, you know, helping you make the decisions, but actually going in, in a closed loop and making those decisions for you with direct connectivity to machines. And that, that's really, you know, it gets me excited about the possibilities of, of what can be achieved in our space. Well said, how do we find out more follow online, learn from you all that, please. Yeah, completely. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn personally. Uh, if you want to search me and add me, always happy to talk to a fellow entrepreneur, uh, Alex Sandoval. And then our website is Ali, A-L-L-I-E, systems.com. Uh, and you can, you can reach out there as well. Fantastic. Alex, great stuff. Love to have you back in the year and get an update on how the business is growing. Uh, thanks a lot for being with us. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good one. We are out of time, but back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now.